Welcome to Risking Enchantment, a podcast about art, beauty, and the Catholic faith. Hosted by Rachel Sherlock. Hello and welcome to Risking Enchantment. For this week's episode, you've got myself, Rachel Sherlock, and joining me once again is Robin Conroy. Welcome back to the show, Robin. Hello there. <laughs> I, I'm trying to remember what the last episode you were on was. I think it might have been the Prince of Egypt. I think it was Egypt. the Prince of Egypt, yes. Because... Obviously, as my animator friend, I have you, have you on whenever I want to discuss something animated. And uh, this episode is no exception. Of course, I do want to say you are well-schooled and well-versed in lots of wonderful things. Thank you. <laughs> You're not only limited to animated things. However, as I said, whenever I see something that I want to talk about that's animated, I'm like, you know who would be great to talk to about this? It's Robin. I am the resident art kid. (laughs) Absolutely. And in this case, it is something that we actually have in common for more than just this episode of the podcast, which is we're going to be talking about a series called Over the Garden Wall, which was an animated series for kids, which came out, I think it was 2014. It's a wonderful series, but I have a tradition of having a viewing of it yearly in my apartment and I think this was our third year doing it together yes yeah I think it Um, was lockdown always makes things (laughs) hazy (laughs) yeah we didn't have anyone for the last two years sadly I had to do it alone Mm -hmm. but for the most part there is a there is a tradition among our friendship group to to watch this this series and discuss it because it is the most autumnal the most cozy and spooky and seasonal delightful series that there is I have to shout out my friends Johnny and Kate who introduced me to it and I then immediately have spread it as far and as wide as possible because in some ways it's quite an under it's a series that's flown under the radar a little Mm -hmm. bit I think it has pockets of a fan base here and there but for the most part I don't think most people have heard of Over the Garden Wall. It kind of falls into that sort of well it's starting to fall into that sort of cult classic category where there's a certain contingent where that's a lot of season of people who who watch it kind of every Halloween now and I will say to anyone who's like skeptical about of like Halloween stuff in general I am like very much not a horror person and like don't necessarily buy into like all of the Halloween kind of aesthetics and vibes but this one is um this one's actually like a I think it's very manageable for it's definitely spooky but it's very manageable for people who aren't even necessarily really into like deeply creepy things or you know yeah I think so and I think it does it was obviously made for kids I think it does work for kids I think it'll probably maybe like push them a little bit I think for children it might be genuinely a bit frightening but for adults I don't think it's actually frightening it's just giving you the the kind of experience of watching something kind of scary without actually being (laughs) (laughs) yes yeah so the series is as I said it's 10 episodes but the episodes are only 10 minutes long so the whole runtime of the series is just under two hours so in some ways the format is very much 
based around it being very short little segments. It is very episodic. So in some ways it doesn't feel like one big long movie, but equally it functions like a movie in that you can watch it in one night. You don't have to come and watch it in one night comfortably, not just (laughs) starting at five o'clock and ending at midnight or whatever. It is something that you can watch in one go in the same way that you might a movie. But the story is about two brothers, uh, they're actually half-brothers, called Wirt and Greg, and they find themselves, it opens with them lost in strange woods, creepy and dark woods, adrift in time, we don't really know when and where they are, Uh, and the only thing we know is they're in a place called the Unknown, and uh, throughout the, the episodes, they are helped by a bluebird called Beatrice, who is sort of impatient and foul-tempered, but definitely becomes their friend. They also encounter the woodsman, and he he kind of gives them warnings and some direction. And they travel through this mysterious place with a lot of different autumnal settings in, an, in a variety of different ways. And uh, they're all quite strange or eerie. And... Uh, throughout the throughout the the episodes they like each episode has its own problem to solve or maybe like a minor antagonist or something that they need to overcome but kind of in the background of all of this is there's a menacing figure called the beast who is this unidentifiable shadowy monster who is driven by self-preservation he wants the souls of the two kids lost in the woods. And again, as I usually say, there's some spoiler alert. It's not really a story of twists and turns. I think it's fine to listen to us talking about it. But if you do want to go in totally fresh, uh, you know, maybe pause here, watch it. I think I looked it up. It's not on Netflix at the moment, but I think it is maybe on Hulu. I don't have Hulu, so I, I don't know. But um, I think it's on at least one of the streaming sites at the moment. But there is also a DVD. So I would, like I said, I watch it every year. It's the kind of series that merits rewatching. So it is the kind of series that might be worth getting a DVD for yeah. because it, it does have a good rewatchability. Yeah, it has a time of year yeah, every it, single year that you're going to watch it, you know? <laughs> yeah, it, it definitely lends itself to that kind of ritualistic. <laughs> and maybe there's something interesting to say about the maybe our generation's approach to mimicking types of rituals at certain seasons that may maybe maybe this kind of an interesting parallel to religion but I don't think we're going to go down that way but it is yeah it's something that I think people can build up a little little bit of a, a ritual about and as we said it's it's just artistically and the humor it has because it, it is very funny as well and also the kind of strong morals or the interesting story that it tells is all very engaging. Like I think it just works on every level as a piece of art. I've got a quote here which kind of sums it up uh, really nicely. It's from a, an article just which is just called A Deep Dive on Over the Garden Wall. But it says, Over the Garden Wall is so wildly successful among viewers because it satisfies a specific niche, the desire for a balance between grimly gothic and endearingly comforting. This success can be attributed directly to its strategic production context, broad variety of nostalgic appeals, allusions to classic folktales, and cohesive technical and aesthetic elements. Yes, and that's quite a an impressive kind of like summation of what's in this piece because one of the things that's quite interesting about it is that it is in in ways hard to pin down because it is so rich in reference. 
Mm-hmm. I guess at its heart, the actual kind of like broad themes are quite universal and and beautiful. There's a there's a lot of um, focus on friendship, cooperation, what it means to be a a good big brother is a big theme in the show, or just a good brother in general, a good sibling, and yeah, what it means to sort of choose kindness in a real way uh, as opposed to a kind of a saccharine way. Yeah, definitely. I think it's interesting because one of the episodes that we had on with you a couple of years ago now was actually about um, Cartoon Saloon and Song of the Sea. And we were actually pulling out some of these elements of children's stories and Halloween stuff and Christian elements mixed in with Celtic mythology elements. And so if that's kind of an area that you want to explore a bit more, that's a, you know, you can always listen to, yeah, to that previous episode. We've good had. companions. Excellent companion pieces. But yes, so I think we have kind of delved into before where kind of Halloween-y or spooky stories, even for kids, do have a place. But I think for Over the Garden Wall, it works really strongly because there are a lot of Halloween-y imagery and elements in it, but it's also so grounded in its morals. It is such a, to me, such a Christian story in that it is about these sort of foundational morals. Yeah, yeah, I absolutely agree. I think even like when we look at kind of the journey that the two characters take, I mean, so the brothers are kind of like two different archetypes. You have Wirt, who is, uh, <laughs> as Rachel pointed out, basically his like word is not a name, but it sounds a lot like Worry Wart, <laughs> which very much like encapsulates his character and that he's somebody who's very much in his head he writes beautiful poetry to himself that he doesn't let anyone else know about (laughs) and he's yeah just generally very kind of like over anxious um, and kind of constantly assessing every situation as to how things can go wrong and not in his favor and then in contrast we have Greg his little brother who is kind of like sunshine embodied like he is the most joyful child you've ever met but also has no capacity to like (laughs) entertain a plan for anything and so the combination of these two characters lost in a woods provides endless kind of entertainment just seeing their dynamic between the two of them but in terms of a moral kind of framework it's also just really interesting seeing how they both grow and learn to kind of take on aspects of the virtues that are present in each other's what initially look like fatal flaws, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. And how they need, they both need each other and how in particular Wirt has to go on this process of of redemption, really, that he is really liable to succumb to his own despair. Like he has all of these like very teenage angsty, melodramatic quotes of, uh, you know, sometimes I just feel like I'm a boat upon a winding river, twisting toward an endless black sea, further and further, drifting away from where I want to be, who I want to be. <laughs> Meanwhile, Greg's in the background just, like, throwing things around. Oh, we should hate, like, we should point out at this point that when we're introduced to the characters, and this is just a, an element that I love, that, like, part of the reason why it's so difficult to place where they are is that their costumes are are like indefinable where it's basically wearing like a large red cone shaped hat and like an impressive blue cape and then greg is in green pants with braces and he's just 
inexplicably wearing a teacup on his or a teapot on his head for the entire series and yeah it just adds wonderfully to the whimsy the actual reason why they're wearing those things does become explained later in the series but um it's uh yeah, it just yeah. adds to the, the the strange dynamic between the two of them fantastically. Yeah, there. Yeah, it's it is interesting how not having them in a specific time or place makes it all all the more accessible, or in a, like it draws you into that world of fairy tales so quickly because you just have to accept like, oh, they're just wearing these crazy things and. Like you said, there is an interesting reveal where those things are actually put in context and they're not actually as crazy as you might think. But it is funny how, yeah, just placing them in this ambiguous space allows you to enter into this very moralistic world of fairy tales. I think that's one of the key things is is that fairy tales are how we teach children morals. Mm. So this is a, a really interesting to me, example of modern storytelling that actually lives up to the kinds of timeless quality of fairy tales that have come before it. Yeah, and just the sense that like whimsy and kind of um, otherworldliness can often give us a space to explore moral questions without our sort of like speculative kind of glasses on, that we can just really enter into something and be swept up in it and then at the end you kind of go, oh, that actually struck me in a way that I didn't anticipate that it would. Yeah, and that the problems of the kids, even though they're in this fantastical place that has wolves that end up transforming into dogs, or you've got pumpkin-headed people walking around, or you've even got like a spooky kind of witch character at one point, that these things are obviously strange and fantastic and fairy tale like but the problems that Wirt and Greg are facing are actually recognizable especially Wirt that that sense of needing the optimism of Greg and that kind of hope and his battle with his own it like so much of it is about his own social anxiety which mm. i think is so recognizable at the, especially at that age where you just feel so awkward and you don't know how to relate to the world and you don't know how to t- to, to make any action for yourself without overthinking it or how to take responsibility for your own actions that like it's it's such a relatable journey that he has to go on even if it's in this sort of fantastical setting absolutely because for kind of the first the first half of the series we really have greg taking the lead through the unknown simply because he's the only one of the two who will actually make a decision about anything but his decisions as a small boy are like based on little to no kind of like reasoning <laughs> and so yeah that you they kind of get even more deeply entangled initially just because Wirt is struggling to to be a voice of reason that will like make a call on anything <laughs> And I think it's interesting that in the very first episode, we get directly told what the journey Wirt has to go on is because they encounter the woodsman and Greg (laughs) runs around and causes his own kind of mayhem. And at the end, Wirt essentially is rebuking his brother and saying it it was his fault that all of this happened. And the woodsman goes, you are the older brother. You are responsible for you and your brother's actions. And... It, it doesn't necessarily take up from there immediately, but that's ultimately where it has to go. And as the story progresses, 
Greg then sees his brother giving up hope that they're ever going to get out of the woods, that they're going to, that he feels like they're going to be lost there forever. And he's just going to give up, which is actually the plan of the beast to, to draw the life out of them in that way. But Greg is the one that says, well, then, okay, I better solve all of these problems. And he ends up essentially trying to sacrifice himself because Wirt can't bring himself to step up to the plate mm-hmm. and be the person of action and even hope and I think it's such an interesting thing to see how how that's rebuked and how it is actually Wirt's responsibility and he sees his responsibility and he takes action and he finds hope yeah. and I think that's it's such a beautiful uplifting story especially for kids and so in that yeah way. it's it's that beautiful marrying of faith and reason in a way that he has to like have hope that they're going to get out of the forest but also the fact that he is somebody who is thoughtful and has a poetic soul actually like is actually a means by which he can he can get them out of there. Yeah, absolutely. I saw um, a video which was talking about them in, in in quite complex terms, but in the in the context of Kierkegaard's concept of the night of eternal resignation and the night of faith, that like these two characters are the two sides of this this one coin. So I have a quote on here which says, Kierkegaard wanted to learn why people choose to have faith in the first place. In his Fear and Trembling, he explained the idea behind his night of faith and the night of infinite resignation by placing them in a hypothetical scenario where each is in love with a princess. The night of resignation is not afraid of letting love creep into his most secret and most hidden thoughts, to let it twine in innumerable coils about every ligament of his consciousness. If the love becomes an unhappy love, he will never be able to tear himself loose from it. While the knight of faith goes through the same pains as the first, he ultimately says, I believe nevertheless that I shall get her, in virtue, that is, of the absurd, in virtue of the fact that with God all things are possible. The knight of faith resigns not himself, but his perception of the absurd unknown before him, substituting his own interpretation for the trust in God's knowledge. So... Obviously, Greg, who is like a five-year-old, is not on a, on a quest of love, but there is that sense that the two are approaching this problem from completely opposite perspectives. And Wirt, on the other hand, is absolutely a knight who is <laughs> yearning for love. He has a crush on a girl and it is destroying him. <laughs> and he definitely the chivalric form of pining for love he as we said he writes this love poetry and he has a sort of muse in this character called sarah and i think all of this is really interesting because it really ties him to the elements that we want to kind of dive into next which is that word is very much the character of dante in the divine comedy and actually quite a lot of over the garden wall really draws on the divine comedy and in particular the inferno and i think just an extra point in 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 Wirt's characterization it's really interesting that at one point in the in, in the episodes he's called specifically called the pilgrim a noble hero on a sacred quest which is even interesting language for a children's story and now obviously in an american context pilgrim also has further meaning as well but that he is this character on a sacred quest, which 
is a, a really interesting element to draw on for it for a children's story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this comes at a point in the se- series where he's he's in a tavern and basically everybody in the tavern has like been assigned a role and they kind of dally between the idea of him being the lover boy or the pilgrim which like combined feel very kind of Dante-esque as well. And there's a lot of themes that kind of like so I would say that in terms of its connection to the Divine Comedy, it's not a direct one-for-one one at all. The The piece is in a way too rich to just be a, a straight sort of replaying of any particular text. In a way, it kind of like echoes the Divine Comedy and that the Divine Comedy pulls from a lot of things as well, which is meta. But, um, but yeah, so it definitely has... It has like structural elements that are similar. You know, it has... 10 episodes which kind of echo the 10 circles and or the there's the, the nine, nine circles, circles plus plus the entryway and you know you have a character called Beatrice who's sort of a guiding female figure throughout the piece it's, it's you, you know you open in mm-hmm. dark woods yeah I think actually that that opening like the fact that it opens in, in the middle of the journey of my life I came to find myself in a dark wood for the straight way was lost and that like That's... you could almost put that straight over the opening of over the garden wall Absolutely. Like it's it's definitely deliberately meant to be something that you have in your mind in relation to kind of the atmosphere of the piece and also the themes of the piece, particularly in relation to, I guess, the ninth circle, which is sort of the the circle of kind of like deepest lost hope. I mean, it's the circle, I think, of treachery, but the way that it's depicted in Dante's Inferno is well it's the circle closest to the devil and so it is a kind of a frozen lost place there's this real sense that it's a place devoid of light and specifically that the people there are kind of frozen into trees i think is one of the images that's used and that's a direct image that's used in Over the Garden Wall as well as a sense that as Wirt loses hope, he begins to kind of become one of these trees. And spoiler alert, but as these trees are being formed, they are being then used to feed the kind of ever-hungry beast. And so there's a sense that this, like, lost hope is connected with, yeah, a sense of feeding something evil. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I think, uh, and I'm going to come back to your point in just a minute, I think it's interesting that the whole piece, in some ways, I think correlates to the Divine Comedy, or sorry, the Inferno in, in its format, like you said, with the different levels. And even as you said, the last one's ending up in the frozen wasteland there was there's a very extensive video i think it's like 35 minutes long by someone called trey the explainer where he goes through every reference to the inferno that he can find in it i personally think that some of them are a little overwrought i don't think it's quite as you said i I don't think it's it's so strict a retelling he does make i think a relatively compelling case for each episode corresponding to the different levels although i would say it's more like they're just a very small jumping off point from rather than than a really laboured, like, this represents this level. Like, it's more to me that he pulls out some of the imagery. Like, I think it was really interesting. There's one episode near the end where there's a lot of frogs and they kind of like sink down into the mud and the corresponding level of hell has people stuck in mud. So even in like fun little ways that like maybe you're just pulling out a particular image there, I think it's, it's 
fun to to have that kind of experiment of matching them up. But I agree that it's I don't think you need to get out the like the red yarn to do up a big conspiracy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Wall <laughs> of notes, but absolutely that it does really pull on some of those those elements. And even I would say, you know, the only one people ever know is the Inferno. But I would say there's even references to Purgatorio and Paradiso because there's like even just that sense there's an element of the Greg in particular looking up at the stars. Mm -hmm. That's kind of an important moment. Or even potentially, I would say, potentially an element of Dante submerging himself in the River of Leith becomes like, something that comes up later in the story but like you said this one about the edelwood trees to me is absolutely the most important correlation between them because because it goes to the heart of what the story is is actually about which is like we said this idea of despair and hope and obviously in the inferno it's a relatively short moment it's in canto 13 where they come across it's called i think it's translated as like the the wood of the suicides or the forest of the suicides so obviously in that context it's specifically about despair in that context but obviously for a children's story they don't necessarily make it explicit in that way but in the same way that you're talking about when characters lose hope and lose hope of getting out of the the forest of the unknown, they become part of the forest in this particular way where they're turned into these trees, which form a kind of, like you you were saying, Robin, a fuel for the beast. Mm -hmm. So he's feeding on this despair, which I think is such a really interesting way to characterize it. And some of the details are specifically very close to each of them. There was an article here on it, and I've pulled out some quotes they became lost and had no hope for return, creating the terrifying Edelwood with carved faces of horror in the trunk, the black oil dripping like dark blood when extracted. The Edelwood trees do not speak as the forest in Inferno, but they are remarkably similar. After Virgil suggests that Dante break a twig off one of those poisonous trees, the plant cries out in pain and explains their origin, whining, We were men, now we have become plants. Mm -hmm. and Virgil encourages the injured plant to introduce himself and describes how he came to be in this world. My spirit at the taste of disdain, believing by death to flee disdain, made me unjust against my just self. Through suicide, this lost soul found himself rooted with gnarled branches, bleeding should one of his branches be snapped off, the thick blood like the oil of the Edelwood tree. I just think that it's it's so exciting to me to see someone take such a such a poignant moment in the inferno and then have a way of translating it into this fairy tale in a way that is i would agree frightening for children but still relatively appropriate for mm. children and transform it into this very different kind of story yeah and placed within the context of redemption as well because ultimately mm-hmm. wart doesn't become one of the edelwood trees he he finds that source of light and life and warmth um Mm -hmm. through his love for his brother greg honestly and Mm -hmm. but it's yeah it's a deeply affecting way of, of portraying that sort of loss of hope and that sense of like that the beast as a kind of a symbol of evil 
turning something vital into a thing rather than a person. Mm, absolutely. And and that sense of also how this is often achieved by trickery. And again, like we said, that the you know, the last circle of hell in the inferno is treachery. And the last episode of Over the Garden Wall really does reveal the treachery that has been going on in order to sustain this kind of supply of despair, mm -hmm. which is is, is is just really kind of, I don't know, like we said, it's so compelling to watch. It does really merit repeated watching. But then I suppose the, the other side of it is, is as much as we love the way that it dives into this Dante-esque world, as we've mentioned, I don't think it's fair to just leave it there and say, oh, this is a great version of the Inferno for kids and say like, that's that's what's good about it because I, I do feel like it's a classic story and should stand the test of time. And it's because it does draw on so many elements. And as you pointed out earlier, which is so clever, which is that the Inferno and, and Dante's work itself is, is full of all of these literary allusions and references and images. And just like that, Over the Garden Wall is also drawing on so many different elements. And I think that's what makes it genuinely great mm. is the way that it is both deeply, richly imbibed within the various storytelling traditions and has all of this knowledge and has all of the ability to reference and nod to all of these other different stories or different filmmaking elements, but is still completely and uniquely itself and is able to stand on its own two feet and be its own thing and be a creation of the creator, Patrick McHale, that he doesn't get lost in his own references. Mm, yeah, and there's a sense that, like, if Dante's Inferno is Dante's vision of hell, that, like, this over-the-garden wall is, like, Patrick McHale's um, particular vision of the unknown in that the references that are pulled are very close to his own like life um i think there's a lot of a lot of references so you have like germanic fairy tales are very present there's a lot of kind of hansel and gretel imagery um that you know that i think there was like a particular russian animator um who he was very fond of who who kind of influenced some of the look of the piece he has a, a piece called hedgehog in the fog where a, a little hedgehog animated cut out hedgehog gets lost in the fog and has to encounter a bunch of creatures to kind of find his way out but as well as these kind of like more disparate geographical references are really significant references just like americana and Mikhail grew up in New Jersey, I believe, which is kind of adjacent to New England. And so we kind of begin with a lot of very New Englandy feeling settings. There's, you know, turkeys in a pumpkin field in one of the first towns that they encounter, which both feel just quite like rooted in like specific American autumnal traditions. Mm -hmm. And I think there's something quite interesting about that. Like he, he really draws on a lot of that, like American historical references. And even to the extent that like a lot of the characters are dressed in sort of outfits from like the 1800s and 1700s and, and kind of 1910s. And um, I think words like cape we eventually see him like pull it out of an attic and it's like an 1800s Union Infantry soldier's uniform um, cape and like the woodsman is dressed in 1800s clothing. And so there's this sense of like, he's pulled a load of like 
very beautiful American history to create this sort of tapestry that's like unplaceable because it's not one specific place. It's um, it's sort mm. of uh, you know, like there's a point where they're on a, a southern kind of Louisiana style riverboat. And then, you know, New England pilgrims appear in other places. But at the same time, it still feels rooted in something that is connected to the author. Yeah, absolutely. I love all of that. And it's funny because our last episode was on American Southern Gothic. And even even this has some elements of that. In fact, we noticed... I he, he we. <laughs> When we were preparing for this episode, I was joking with Robin because there was a lot of what I considered very overly academic, you know, university papers on Over the Garden Wall being like really in depth on it. But the 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 one article that I haven't found is the Over the Garden Wall's influence from Flannery O'Connor because both me and Robin really think it's there. <laughs> there are... There are some peacocks in one episode which feel like they're they're being very reminiscent of all of the peacock imagery that Flannery O'Connor uses. And there's also a man dressed up in a gorilla suit, which is a, an important plot point in one of her stories. So, you know, I just think that, as we said, it's able to draw from a bunch of different American traditions. And as we can see, it's also wider traditions. There are all kinds of references from all around the world. I think both me and Robin see a lot of references to specifically Spirited Away, the Studio Ghibli film. Mm -hmm. There's talking frogs and even um, demons that need to uh, expel the thing that's making them evil inside of them, which is also in, in Spirited Away. The characterization of a character called Anti Whispers is very like Yubaba. There's, there, there are visual references to that and from all over the world. But I do think it is wonderful to see something that actually really makes a stand at making something in the same way. And this is obviously on a much grander scale, but in the same way that Tolkien was really interested in creating a mythology for England, it feels like this is almost like a really great example of someone creating a very specific American folk story for this age. Yeah. Um, and which, which draws on all of the history. Like I do think even like the Washington Irving Sleepy Hollow story is in there with the New England stuff. And, and even I think also something that we haven't talked about yet is the music that they have in it. It is beautifully scored with a lot of music and songs throughout the episodes even the episodes are only 10 minutes long but I think they can have up to like three actual songs in them uh, and they're beautifully made I do think it's a score that's worth listening to but it really draws on things like jazz and folk bands and country music and ballads and a lot of those traditional American music genres as mm -hmm. well and even in terms of more recent things, I think it draws a lot on a particular brand of American filmmaking. You know, we were talking about Martin McDonough's Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. It's not a million miles away. I was I was really reminded of Tim Burton's Big Fish, which is very episodic, very fairy tale with a lot of strange and wonderful characters and I was also reminded of the Coen brothers Oh Brother Where Art Thou which in some ways is quite fitting because that's a retelling of the Odyssey so it's another example of taking these much older stories 
and bringing them into an American setting and making it kind of uniquely American. Yeah, absolutely. And even the way that it's sort of, it's episodic, but it's kind of like things bleed into each other and there's a sense of like not every single piece of the story being fully fleshed out. It's it's beautifully fairy tale esque and actually Mikhail himself stated that um one of the things he kind of wanted to have in the piece, there's a, there's a concept in Native American folk traditions that when they weave tapestries or quilts, that they'll leave a single piece of the quilt that's like deliberately mismade. Um, so like a piece of the pattern will be off slightly. And it's this sort of idea that you create a deliberate imperfection to indicate that the piece is an exercise in kind of humanity, that there's a humility there kind of grounding yourself in something that's man-made rather than divine. And I think that's really lovely. It's in one way it's a kind of it's a, a nice cop out for if you don't tie up all of your like loose seams to kind of say that it's I deliberately made it not deliberately all sewn up. But it's also quite nice in that like again, it's that it's that tying into something that's like specifically American mm-hmm. and and yeah, like you said, that there's there's something kind of beautiful about like there there can often be the kind of critique that like Americans don't have a culture, and I think this very much points to the contrary that actually there's so many distinct cultural elements present in this piece that it's actually it's it, it makes it ambiguous and hard to place sometimes because it's uh it's this kind of beautiful complex tapestry. I, I think that's actually really important that it's not just drawing on one American tradition, it's drawing on, on many of them. And even like cultural traditions that we've lost, like the second episode is called the Husk and Bee, which was a real thing that people used to do, which was to get together to husk the corn for, for the harvest, you know, mm-hmm. that uh, there are all of these elements. And like we said, artistic legacies that they're drawing on. So, you know, I've mentioned all of the music, you know, all of all of that great blues music and even you know some choral music uh i think actually i was i forgot to mention that the the character of work the main character is voiced by elijah wood <laughs> which to me is almost and he is great in that in that character but to me is almost again like a little nod to the lord of the rings yeah. that like oh here's someone on a quest and there's also a moment where they climb into a wardrobe with fur coats in it and it's like oh uh, uh, uh. <laughs> I see what you did I there I recognize that <laughs> but staying on the American side of the ocean um, uh, Elijah Wood said that if this show were a record it would be played on a phonograph I love that <laughs> um, even, even fr- from an animation point of view like you were saying about kind of pulling the kind of jazzy bluesy music in it there's also parts of the animation that really echo sort of 1930s style rubber hose animation which would have kind of gone in tandem with those two things often you would have had jazz music would have been kind of initially introduced to a wider audience through animation and the way that 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 animation was kind of portrayed was these like kind of crazy zany montages of people's whose limbs could kind of go every which way and there's some really nice kind of echoes of that particularly in the tavern scene where you have what i think is the most standout piece of animation in the in the the kind of whole series which is a song sung by the highwayman <laughs> so look out for that if you're um if you're going to give the show a go but um yeah again it's just another little little hint to something that's 
um, also part of the American tradition in that they kind of brought animation to a kind of a new place um, on a grander scale through the medium of TV. Yeah, there's a really rich intertextuality of the way that it's animated. It's 2D animation. It's beautifully done, like every element is beautiful, but they also have the ability to play with the style of animation to make small references to different eras of animation. So like you said, that moment of the kind of rubber hose animation, there's also a whole episode which is very much in the kind of early Disney Steamboat Willie era of like, I think it references the Silly Symphonies a lot. Mm-hmm. I think it's episode um, eight, yes. which has a kind of dream sequence in it that changes animation style to reference these older styles of animation, which is such a lovely little nod to take the time or to take the interest in wanting to place yourself, even in your animation style, into a legacy and a history, which is so much fun. I just think there's so much to explore in the way that the art is is done. Mm. And I think there is a, they've released an art book for Over the Garden Wall, which I clearly need to get my hands on if that's the case. Yeah, I was thinking that myself, even just kind of like when I was delving into this, I was like, whoa, there, there's so much I want to know, like straight from the horse's mouth, what, um, what their own thoughts on the creation were. Yeah. And even just in the, the various settings, I've got a quote here from an article which is talking about the, the use of Americana. And it's saying, at the heart of Americana is nostalgia. Nostalgia in the unknown is created in part from the environment. An old schoolhouse, a steamboat, a mill, a rural town, as well as the music. These scenes and places, wattages and personages belong inextricably, unmistakably to this country and this country alone. The rural, small town aesthetic is certainly modelled after the picturesque American countryside where red barns, orchards and wide open spaces are replete. And I think that's so wonderful as well, that even just in the landscape, and it's so important that the story takes place both in this landscape and at this time of year, that it is actually an autumnal piece on purpose, not just because people like autumn, as we've said earlier in this series of podcasts, but that like it's actually telling you something about the story. And I think it's really interesting. You mentioned just a little while ago, Robin, about the the quilt and working a mistake into the quilt. Patrick McHale actually has a quote on that line about how he constructed the series where he compares it to a quilt. He says, every episode has its own unique colour and pattern, but overall it was supposed to become one quilt that all works together. Mm. And I think that's so fitting because what's so nice about it is that each episode is almost in a slightly different style or it takes a slightly different approach to what you might term the season that like within saying something is spooky or within saying something's cozy or something is chilly that like all of these kind of elements of of Halloween and October and that kind of season and we do find out that the story starts on Halloween that it is able to explore a slightly different gradation of all of these themes or aesthetics or approaches to this time of year that you can have so that you have the slightly more spooky ones or the slightly more uh, funny ones or the slightly more cozy ones that like together they all have this this pattern like a quilt that's in different gradations of color that come together so that you get the full spectrum of of everything that the season has to offer mm. and i think Finally, the the last point about it being at this season, it's not just 
superficial. It's that this is a season of in, in between times. You know, it is between summer and winter, warmth and cold, life and death, abundance and decline, beginnings and endings. And there is a reason why Halloween and the All Hallows Eve, the season of the souls, this sense that our ancestors had this feeling that there was like a thinning between this world and maybe the next world or this world and a world beyond in some way that the souls would have some contact with us or that the kind of numinous or the supernatural might break through at this time, that it's a specifically seasonal work because it's drawing on those themes. It's it's looking at how all of these elements relate. I think the second episode is the one that takes place in Pottsfield, which is about a harvest festival, but a harvest festival that has this element of the dead coming back mm. to life. And so those two things are actually connected. They're not just by happenstance together, yeah. but this is actually something telling us something about this season. Pottsfield could be a abbreviation for a potter's field as in like an unmarked grave you know and so there's a sense of those mm -hmm. those two things being kind of deeply connected yeah it's just full of those little details and it's a wonderful way to explore the memento mori message of this season so it's a great time to explore that and so i think you know it just a huge recommendation for watching Over the Garden Wall. I think maybe I'll close out with actually quoting one of the songs that they sing because it's beautifully written. I just think it's great. And so this is one of the, the main background songs to, to the series. Led through the mist by the milk light of moon, all that was lost is revealed. Our long bygone burdens, mere echoes of the spring. But where have we come and where shall we end? If dreams can't come true, then why not pretend? Oh, how the gentle wind beckons through the leaves as autumn colours fall. Woo! I mean, to me, <laughs> that sounds pretty great. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, you know, join me in my annual tradition of watching Over the Garden Wall. I think this episode should come out just in time for Halloween. So if you're really quick, you can get on it and enjoy it for, it's a it's a good Halloween watch. I would recommend Absolutely. it. Absolutely. You know, also into November, because as we've said before, Halloween is the start of spooky season, just as Christmas is the start of the Christmas season. <laughs> yeah, I absolutely agree. But, even the even the piece itself kind of like bridges into the beginnings of winter. Um, so mm -hmm. I think as long as you're watching it in and around that period of time, it's absolutely acceptable. <laughs> yeah, you can make the really Catholic case that actually you should wait until november to watch it because <laughs> <laughs> we're celebrating things like halloween too early <laughs> but since we've covered over the garden wall and how much we enjoy it that really only leaves us with what else are you enjoying at the moment robin i have like a weird feeling that we might have the same thing this time but um i don't worry i've picked it back oh good <laughs> i am currently enjoying um the latest Taylor Swift album Midnight's mm -hmm. it's uh yeah a very kind of like sparkly nighttimey feeling uh album which kind of just feels very fitting for this time of year as well it's it's well named as Midnight's but uh yeah I'm uh 
long-term Taylor Swift fan. Uh, I will make no apologies for that fact. <laughs> but uh, that is what I'm getting more. Yeah, I think what's so fun about her again is the way that she is a storyteller and that she does enjoy the storytelling aspect of songwriting. And so to me anyway, it feels like she's always managing to explore something a little bit different yeah. or something she kind of uh, creates her own little world pl- with each um each of her album releases and they all have their own kind of like visuals and yeah yeah it's it's really fun to kind of partake in the whole party you know yeah each album is is a snapshot of a particular mood or feel or um aesthetic that you can sort of dive into at your own leisure which is a lot of fun i agree i really enjoy the album i'm so glad it's out <laughs> <laughs> like you i'm a long-term taylor swift fan and i make no apologies <laughs> but it, yeah it was really great but as, as i guessed that that was perhaps what you were going <laughs> going to pick uh i'll recommend something else and say that i've just finished a book called uh the fortnight in september uh, can you tell I'm doing some seasonal reading as well as some seasonal watching? But it's by R.C. Sheriff, who's most famous for his World War One play, Journey's End. I picked this book up in a charity shop. And it's w- it's one of those cases where I had never heard of the book. And then as soon as I went to read it, I started seeing it kind of referenced everywhere. <laughs> uh, but it's a wonderfully gentle quiet book about a family from the 1930s taking their annual two-week holiday to the beach and it's a it's a very psychologically astute book I recognized a lot of you know the fleeting moments or thoughts that cross your mind particularly in a family dynamic of the way that you view your siblings or the 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 moments of embarrassment that you have with your parents or all of the little highs and lows that make up all of those moments of like family engagement uh it's and it's not a book in which like a lot happens there's not exactly great moments of crisis or triumph or anything like that but it is just chronicling in a very dignified way that the way that those family moments matter uh it's beautifully written it's very autumnal um they kind of make a point of going on their holiday at the very end of the season. So it is in September. It is a slightly different time of year. And yeah, I just loved it. I thought it was wonderful. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I would, I would recommend the, the fourth night in September. Yeah. And so other than that, thank you very much for listening. I hope you all have a wonderful coming up weekend for Halloween weekend. However you choose to celebrate that and obviously we've got some great catholic feast days coming up we've got all saints and all souls so wishing all of our listeners the best for those and i should be back soon with another episode i am conscious that i've got some traveling coming up at the start of november so apologies if that means a delay in the episodes but there should be more coming on the way soon and thank you so much for listening and you can follow us on instagram at the handle at risking enchantment podcast uh, you can find me on Twitter at Seeking Watson. Robin, is there anywhere you want to highlight that people can find I you? I mean, you can look at my Instagram, Robin Conroy Art. I don't think I have posted in quite some time, so it probably hasn't been updated since the last time I was on the podcast. But if you haven't listened to that episode, you're very welcome to give that a follow. 
Yeah, absolutely. And Robin's artwork is amazing. So even if it's a little old, it's always worth <laughs> checking out. <laughs> and thank you so much for joining me on the podcast, Robin. It's wonderful to have you. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. And thanks for listening. Goodbye. Bye. This has been Risking Enchantment. Music by Kevin McLeod. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter with the handle at SeekingWatson. And you can find out more about me and the podcast at rachelsherlock.com. Thank you and God bless.